Now, as we start tonight, <clears throat> I want to remind you, as the outline that you have in front of you shows, <clears throat> I want to remind you of the change in form which we discover in this largest and keystone chapter of the book of Lamentations. You recall I placed chapter 3 at the keystone or central position of the book, and I will enlarge, pun intended, I will enlarge upon that defense as we go on. The acrostic style is retained here in this third chapter, where you still see the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet descending from Aleph to Tau along the left-hand side of your handout. But that acrostic is wonderfully enlarged from 22 verses, one verse per letter of the alphabet, to 66 verses, three verses per letter of the alphabet. And if you have the Hebrew text that we've passed out, you can see that with the Hebrew, the beginning of the Hebrew line, each of the three verses begins with the same Hebrew letter. In fact, in chapter 3, we have an explosion of poetic riches as the poet magnifies his inspired skill thrice over for all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. In addition to this poetic richness, you will notice from your outline the symmetry of parallelism in the various sections, A and A prime at the bottom, B and B prime towards the bottom, etc. Words or phrases are duplicated, producing a mirror symmetry that connects the respective converse sections. For instance, A, A prime with the word hand in both sections. B, B prime with the phrase against me in both sections, etc. as we go down. Now, as I said last time, <clears throat> the form may not be strictly chiastic, but it is related or interrelated with the recursive or repeated element unfolding or repeating, or even contrasting and reversing the duplicate word or phrase. There is an interrelationship between the sections and between the word that occurs, and there is a variety of the way in which that interrelationship is signaled or is described. For example, you will notice hand in section A, it occurs in verse 3 of the Hebrew text in the English translation. Hand in section A is God's hand. Whereas the parallel hand in A prime, that is in verse 64, is the oppressor's hand. The hand of the Babylonian invader. Whereas the suffering man... Now, we've described him this way as he describes himself in verse 1 of chapter 3. The suffering man in verse 3 of 
of this chapter, feels the hand of divine wrath. It is nonetheless a hand which portends divine grace and so detailed, so grace is detailed in verses 22 and 23 respectively of this third chapter. The hands of verse 64 receive the condign wrath of God tempered with no grace or mercy. The contrasting or reverse aspect of the respective hands in A and A prime are mirrored. The hands are hands of wrath, verse 1, and anger, verse 66. And there you will note the synonyms, anger and wrath. But God's hand of wrath in verse 1 prepares the way for his wrathless hand of grace. And by contrast, the hands of the Babylonians, verse 64, prepare the way for God's condign anger, which will consume them. As the acrostic unfolds, it will be necessary for us to pause sometimes to identify the symmetrical element of the corresponding units. Your outline attempts to do that with the A, A prime, B, B prime, C, C prime, etc. Then it will be necessary to ascertain the function, even the theological function, of the recursive or repetitive mirror element in each unit. In A and A prime, as we have just shown, the symmetry is contrastive, even in reverse theological fashion. Other duplicate units may be expansive, <clears throat> enlarging upon one another. Or they may be contrastive or reverse paradigms. For instance, take F and F prime on your outline. Verses 16 to 18, unit F, verses 49 to 51, F prime. They contain, as you will notice, symmetrical elements. Soul and Lord. Soul in verse 17, and Lord Yahweh in verse 18, I'm giving you the Hebrew word there, but it's Yahweh in the Hebrew text, are duplicated in Lord Yahweh in verse 50 and soul in verse 51. In fact, you will notice the use or the listing or the order of those symmetrical elements, soul, Lord, Lord, soul, is a chiastic reversal of the two terms. This places the emphasis upon a mirror-like expansion by the repetition. The soul of the suffering man in verse 17 has been rejected from hope in the Lord Yahweh, verse 18. In verse 50, the Lord Yahweh looks attentively even graciously, and sees the pained soul of the suffering man. Rejection turned or reversed by attention, 
Rejection reversed by attention. A soul of personal hopelessness becomes a soul carrying pain for others. May we suggest vicarious hopefulness. Vicarious hopefulness. The pattern then of this largest 66-verse acrostic of our poem contains mirror symmetry in multiform or a variety of ways. And as we proceed, we will have occasion to comment on the specifics of that multiformity and variety as recursive symmetry arises in the respective units. And we will do so especially as it impacts the career of the man who suffers affliction, verse 1. Do not forget the suffering man of this third chapter. All right. We're going to pick up with a detail in verses 10 through 12, and I'm reading the verses from the New American Standard Version. He, that is God, is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. The image in verse 10, the image of the bear and the lion Lying in ambush is a frequent judgment motif in the former prophets, what we might call the minor prophets. Hosea 13, verses 7 and 8, Amos chapter 5, verse 19, attest to this image. Like the ferocious bear in hiding or the voracious lion in waiting, So God's judgment is poised to pounce upon sinful Judah and Jerusalem. And the suffering man, the suffering man is part of that scenario. He too trembles at the voracious and ferocious judgment of God before him. The word weighs in verse 11 reprises the same word in verse 9. What was blockaded in verse 9 is diverted in verse 11. Diverted by a ferocity as terrible as that of a bear and lion potentially tearing him to pieces. In fact, the ferocity of desolation which fell upon Jerusalem in 586 B.C., was like that of a bear and lion let loose upon a trapped and wearied prey. The suffering man is torn too. The suffering man is torn too as he represents and takes to himself the vocabulary which we read about the city herself in chapter 1, verses 4 
13 and 16. She too is desolate. She too is torn in pieces. She too is turned aside to destruction. A suffering man takes the vocabulary of the feelings and the emotions and the positions of the suffering city herself. This suffering man is a vicarious agent. Even the target image of verse 12, the target image of verse 12 echoes chapter 2, verse 4. Lady Jerusalem has been the object of God's notched bow. Now that bow returns with the arrows of divine wrath targeting the suffering man. He feels what the people feel. He is pierced with pain and death as they are. He folds himself down into their story so that they may be lifted up into his story. He identifies with their story. He is pressed down into their history. This D and D prime unit labeled on your outline has the recursive or symmetrical pattern of enlarging or amplifying the meaning of the text. You will notice that verse 11 of the D unit states, God turned aside from the ways of our afflicted or suffering man. The depths of that affliction. The depths of that affliction and hence the pathos of sense or feeling of that affliction are expressed in the parallel verse 58 of the parallel D prime unit. Out of the lowest pit of affliction and suffering. Out of the lowest pit of affliction, the Lord heard his suffering servant's voice and he drew near unto him. The Lord drew near not to devour him with animal ferocity, not to tear him in pieces with brute voracity, not to make him a target for his bow. God drew near in verse 58 to listen to his suffering servant's cry, his cry of despair and desolation, to bend not his bow, but his ear, to bend his ear to his servant's relief, to draw near not with animal-like ferocity, but with tenderness, Fear not, verse 57, to draw near with assurance, be not afraid, to draw near with life, notice verse 58, with life beyond fear and despair and desolation and pain and affliction. God drew near. He was not far off, remote, enemy-like. God drew near. To this suffering servant, drew near to him that he might live, live 
and never more fear or be turned aside in his cries nor be a target nor be a prey. God drew near that this righteous suffering servant might never more suffer, never more die. No, not ever anymore. God drew near that his afflicted servant might live, live redeemed, live life redeemed, restored, life anew. Now that brings us to verses 13 to 15, the E, e prime unit. Reading the text once again, he made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughing stock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. Now, verse 13 is continuous. It continues and enlarges the arrow target image of the previous verse, verse 12. The sons of his quiver, which is how the Hebrew text literally reads, the sons of his quiver are the arrows of the previous verse. The wounds are not only physical. The wounds are not only physical, they penetrate deep into the center of his emotions. The inward parts are literally, in Hebrew as the New American Standard margin indicates, the inward parts are the kidneys. There is an interesting passage in the book of Proverbs, chapter 23, verse 15 which we need to note in connection with this business of the kidneys being the center of emotion. Proverbs 23:15. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad, and my kidneys will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. You will notice the parallelism there in those stanzas from Solomon's Proverbs, heart and kidneys used synonymously. Here in Lamentations 3, the kidneys are the same. They are the seat of human emotions They are like the heart, the very core of human feeling and existence. Our suffering man is pierced by God's judgment to the very core of his emotions, to the very center of his being, his existence. It is not merely the flesh which is torn and wounded. It is the very depths of his being 
his innermost heart and soul, which has been pierced by the righteous judgment of God. Do we not perceive the eschatological suffering servant here, anticipated, yea, projected by the Jeremianic suffering servant? We should, for he is prefiguring and foreshadowing him. It is this target image which provides a potentially reciprocal element to E prime on your outline. I say potentially because there is no symmetry of duplication or duplication of vocabulary in verses 13 to 15 and verses 52 to 54. This is the one place on your outline where you have a question mark, you have nothing that is textual that recurs in duplication in both units. The symmetry appears vacated in E and E prime. Denison's pattern looks like it's been blown up because E and E prime don't fit. But you'll notice verse 52 records the hunted or targeted image which parallels verse 13. Thematically, we have an echo, if not verbally. Verse 52, my enemies hunted me down like a bird. The hunted or target image is parallel as it was in verse 13. Adding to all that pierces his kidneys is, verse 14, the ridicule, the mockery and taunting. This suffering man has become a laughing stock. He feels the taunts. He smarts from the mockery. Jeremiah, the prophet, was ridiculed. Jeremiah, the prophet, was taunted. He was laughed at as he stood in the stocks on the pillory in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 2. The prophet Jeremiah was mocked also in the prison house of the guard where he was confined for many months, if not for years. Jeremiah, the poet, recalls here that unnerving experience. All my people regarded me as a laughing stock, their song of mockery all the day long. Prophet and poet are one. Prophet and poet are one as suffering man and people have become one. One united to the other, the one voice of chapter 3 of Lamentations. The one voice of chapter 3 of Lamentations, which identifies the previous dual voices of the voice of the prophet, the voice of the poet, and the voice of the city. One voice now in this third chapter, bearing within himself the imagery of the first two chapters and the dual voices of those 
two pericopes. Randy, question? Yes. 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 That's previous history, which is recorded in the book of Jeremiah, according to the dates of the kings that preceded the fall. Now the bitterness of soul, verse 15. The piercing... Tearing, deriding, ridiculing has filled the innermost being of our suffering servant. His core, the core of his existence, the center of his emotions have been filled with wormwood and gall. He has drained the cup of God's wrath, has this suffering servant. He is drunk to the dregs the wormwood of divine and righteous anger, and its taste is bitter, wrenching, draining, deadening. He has drained the cup which Lady Jerusalem has drained. He has emptied the chalice which Judah has emptied. He, this suffering man, has taken in into his very innermost being, he has taken in the bitterness and deadliness of what they have experienced in their innermost being. Encore the vicarious figure. Encore the very vicarious figure. Verses 16 to 18. Yes, question. Is this where the warm world in screw-tape letters comes from? Um, <laughs> it's conceivable that Lewis has borrowed <clears throat> the name from this uh, passage, though I'm not absolutely sure about that. But they do, they, they are the same word. The wormwood in the screw tape letters is one of Satan's demons, one of his imps. <clears throat> well, wormwood doesn't sound good anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on, and we'll look a little more at uh, wormwood. <clears throat> Verses 16 to 18. And he has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. And my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. In this Vav unit, that is the Hebrew letter to the left of the letter F, on your outline at verses 16 to 18, the Vav unit begins, each verse begins with the Vav in this three-verse unit, the three-fold acrostic feature characteristic of this magnificent third chapter. 
Now, the vav is usually translated in English by the word and, which you can see in your English versions. Verse 16, and he. Verse 17, and my. Verse 18, and I, though the New American Standard translates the vav here by so, which is legitimate, but and is also possible, and for the sake of the consistency of the Hebrew word, I would argue that it should have been translated and. We learn then explicitly who the he is of the first 18 verses in this Vav unit. You mean we haven't known who the he is all this way? Well, we have known implicitly from verse 1 whose wrath is his. But his name has never been used. That's right. As you scan the 17 verses before verse 18, you do not read the proper name for God. Neither Adonai... Lord Yahweh, or any of the names by which God is referred to personally in the Old Testament corpus. The last word in verse 18 is the covenant name for God, Yahweh. And it is the first time he has been so named in this poignant chapter. The first time in 18 verses in this chapter where God's name has been used personally. The pronoun has been used, but not the personal name. Now think with me about that. Think about why our poet prophet has done this. These initial 18 verses of chapter 3 are a narrative existential revelation of the downward spiral of the nation's experience, the city's experience, the suffering man's experience. They are collapsed into one narrative. This is one voice again in this third chapter. One voice. At the bottom of that downward spiral, at the bottom of this downward spiral from verses 1 to 18. In verse 18, my strength and my hope have perished. My strength and my hope have perished. And then the final word. Yahweh. Yahweh. Now, when is the next use of the name Yahweh in this poem? Scan forward in your English version and see where you see the next use of the name Lord. And shout it out when you find it. Verse 22. And what is verse 22 emphasizing? Anyone? God's loving kindness, his hesed, 
which is often translated grace. Yahweh's, the covenant Lord's loving kindness. The covenant Lord's grace. Do you see then what our poet prophet has done? Do you see it? He has signaled the end of the downward spiral description of verses 1 to 18 with the name Yahweh. And, and, he has signaled the beginning of the upward spiral of verses 19 and following with that name Yahweh, making explicit the reversal with the covenant name of the Lord in verse 22. It is the very same Yahweh tetragrammaton of the Hebrew language. In verse 18, we are at the end of one narrative vector in this third chapter, and we are at the beginning of a reverse narrative vector in this third chapter, and the pivot point. The pivot point is signaled by the precious, beloved, covenant name of Yahweh of Hesed. This is brilliant theological poetry. This is inspired genius showing by the way he lays out his narrative poetry that we have turned a corner in this magnificent third chapter. Now in that verse, Verse 16, breaking of the teeth with gravel may puzzle you. Is God throwing stones at his teeth? But when you take it with a parallel line in verse 16, that first line is related to the ash of the second line. Translated dust in verse 16 in the New American Standard. Gravel and ash. Now, if you are familiar with Charles Dickens' novel, Our Mutual Friend, you may know about dust or ash heaps in 19th century Victorian England. They were, in fact, huge mounds of trash and garbage, much of which was buried in dust and ashes. People in Victorian London, especially the poor, would pick through the dust mounds looking for valuables or even food. In the Dickens novel, the Boffins manage the dust mounds. And the Boffins become wealthy when they inherit them from their previous owner. Our Mutual Friend was the last novel Dickens completed before he died, and it is a very good novel at that. In fact, in my opinion, it's the best novel he ever wrote. Now, you could imagine if one were picking food out of the ash mounds one just might bite down on some gravel or stones. 
The ashes of Jerusalem are being picked over by the survivors who are looking for food, as you will see in chapter 4, verse 5 of Lamentations. They, too, are biting down on gravel and stones occasionally. as the dust bin catchers of Victorian London in the 19th century occasionally bit down on gravel and stone. The absence of peace to our sufferer's soul, verse 17, is a motif frequent in the book of Jeremiah. I'll mention one passage which is typical of many. Jeremiah 16, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, I have withdrawn my peace from this people. The clash of deadly Babylonian arms has signaled the end of Judah's and Jerusalem's peace and well-being. For shalom means well-being as well as peaceful rest. But our suffering man adds goodness. The New American Standard Translation, happiness, puts good in the margin. Our suffering man adds goodness to the abandoned, forsaken, and forgotten peace. This, too, is echoed in the prophet Jeremiah's book, where peace and good are joined as they are in this verse. We waited for peace, but no good came, Jeremiah 8:15. A statement exactly duplicated in Jeremiah 14:19. The cry from the city recorded in the prophet's book is echoed in his book of laments, including the lamentation of the suffering man here in chapter 3. Notice the sequence. No peace, no good, no hope, verse 18. As he has been cut off from these, so he has been cut off from the Lord. Note well the symmetrical from preposition in verse 17. From peace, verse 17, and from the Lord, verse 18. He has reached the lowest ebb of his suffering. As it were, he has been cut off. He has been cut off from God. All right, we'll pause there and take our break. And after you've stretched yourself a bit and had some refreshment, come back to verse 19. All right, we're at verse 19, and the next unit, verses 19 to 21, to our unit, which is unit G. And we want to keep in mind G prime, verses 46 to 48. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. 
Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Now we begin with the question, whom does our poet ask to remember him? Can I take a guess and say God? The Lord, the last word before verse 19 is the last word in verse 18, which we pointed out was in that prominent pivot position for this whole third chapter. Why does he ask him to remember him? Well, if it were me... What does he say in the text? Why does he ask God to remember? What does he ask God to remember? Remember my what? Affliction. Affliction. Where else have we had that word? Verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction. (laughs) The Hebrew word for affliction appears in this chapter Only in verse 1 and verse 19, it is exactly the same Hebrew word. All right. This word occurs only in verse 1. Affliction in verse 1, affliction in verse 19. The only place in the third chapter where the term appears, what does this suggest in terms of literary style or rhetorical form? It is an anaphora. It is an anaphora. Now, anaphora is a term which stands at the head or beginning of a section or pericope. Verse 1, affliction, stands at the head of that section, verses 1 to 18. Affliction, verse 19, stands at the head of the section, verses 19 and following. Two potential anaphoras or headers for sections of chapter 3. One, a header at verse 1. The other one, a header at verse 19. Now, what is the drama of verses 1 to 18? We described it before our break. It is the downward spiral of the affliction of the suffering servant, which reaches its nadir in verse 18 with hope perished. And what is the drama of verses 19 to 66? It is the reverse. It is the upward spiral of the affliction left behind in Yahweh's hesed, Yahweh's grace, Yahweh's loving kindness, Yahweh's compassion, Yahweh's faithfulness, Yahweh's salvation. All these terms which I just listed, the vocabulary of hope restored, in verse 21 and verse 24, declare. Chapter 3 has two large units. The downward vector of affliction and suffering, which bottoms out in hopelessness, verses 1 to 18. Then the upward vector of affliction reversed and suffering resolved in hope, 
and salvation and vindication, verses 19 through 66. Here you have the two major units of chapter 3, the largest keystone chapter of the book, and the hinge point which distinguishes the one unit from the other, keyed by the anaphora term affliction at the top. Verse 1, verse 19. The sufferer, the sufferer, our suffering man, descends to hopelessness, but then experiences the reverse. The ascent to the great faithfulness of the Lord, where loving kindness is his salvation. And he bears in himself, our suffering man bears in himself the identification of the suffering of the people of God who belong to the city of God. He is a suffering servant who represents or federates within himself, nay, unites to himself, the sufferings of his people, his people who belong to the city of God in him, through him, and by means of his suffering for them. Now note the phrase, wormwood and bitterness, in verse 19. It is translated famously, wormwood and gall, in the King James Version. This is the phrase we sing when we sing the hymn, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. So let's take a look at it. Take the Trinity Hymnal and turn to 296 or to 297, which actually has the more lively and dramatic tune with that stirring bass part in the refrain, 297. And you will notice verse 4 of the hymn. Sinners whose love can ne'er forget the wormwood and the gall. Direct quotation from King James Version of Lamentations 3, verse 19. And so this phrase comes over into our hymnody and is an expression that we sing in remembrance of the eschatological suffering servant who is prefigured in this protological suffering servant of Jeremiah's book of Lamentations. Gall, synonymous with wormwood. Yes, they are synonyms. The bitter juice of perhaps the absinthe plant. Absinthe, A-B-S-I-N-T-H-E. Perhaps, it's uncertain from the Hebrew word here, but it's a guess that that's what it is. Here it reflects the bitter taste of suffering, the bitter taste of affliction as it does in Amos chapter 5, verse 7, and Amos chapter 6, verse 12. Here, the image is the suffering man draining the cup of wormwood and gall. So bitter is his affliction. In this keystone chapter of the five chapters of Lamentations, in this center chapter, verse 21 signals the reverse motif of the dramatic poem. Hope 
which had vanished at the end of verse 19. Notice my hope is gone, it has perished. Hope which had vanished at the end of verse 18 has been turned into new every morning hope at the end of verse 21. The Hebrew word translated recall in verse 21. Translated recall in 21 by the New American Standard is the Hebrew word shuv, to reverse or to return or to renew. Hope reborn. Hope reborn out of the Lord's character. Hope reborn out of the Lord's nature, the Lord's arena, the Lord's eschaton. The suffering man is reborn in hope, in hesed grace, in loving kindness, in the divine supernatural life and power of his covenant Lord. He is reborn. Hopeless suffering gives place to hopeful blessing. Hopeful blessing reverses hopeless suffering. We are at the turning point in the dramatic poetry of the narrative of this poem, the narrative of this life, the narrative of this climactic and apocalyptic drama. Verses 22 to 24. The Lord's loving kindness, loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. This section, of course, contains a line which gives us one of the great Christian hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness, number 32 in the Red Trinity Hymnal. It is the only Lamentations hymn in the index to the Trinity Hymnal, although, as we just pointed out, there should be a reference to all hail the power of Jesus' name also in that scripture index at the back. God's faithfulness in verse 23 is the third of the attributes of God found in this unit. In order, God's attributes are his loving kindness, hesed, often translated grace, his compassion, ruham, in Hebrew, often translated mercy, as in Hosea chapter 1, ruhamah, Mercy, lo ruhama, no mercy. And his faithfulness, emuna in Hebrew. How wonderfully encouraging are these qualities of God's very nature. Especially encouraging to suffering sinners and particularly to the suffering man of chapter 3. The gracious, loving kindness of the Lord stands to cover and cancel the sinful demerit and judgment of iniquity justly earned by Judah and Jerusalem. The merciful compassion of the Lord lifts up the downcast and miserable soul, awash in the consequences of its transgressions and desperately needing a merciful God and Savior. 
The trustworthy faithfulness of the Lord God captures the fickle and undependable mind and heart of a sinner with a steadfast, ever-faithful Lord, completely, fully worthy of our trust. Taking these attributes of God as his portion, as his possession, as his in union with the God who possesses them, our suffering man has hope. His aspirations have been renewed. Morning by morning, new mercies. What blessings in hope are those? Morning by morning, new reminders of grace. What blessings in hope are those? Morning by morning, renewed assurance that the Lord God is faithful. He is trustworthy. He has spoken and it comes to pass. He can be trusted fully for succor in sorrow and suffering. Indeed, what blessings in hope are these? Did the eschatological suffering servant, did the eschatological suffering God-man experience any less than these divine attributes in his history of suffering and glorification. He declares, Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And we sing that chorus in him. We sing that chorus in Christ Jesus, our gracious, loving, merciful, compassionate, faithful Savior and trustworthy Lord. If Jeremiah can sing it in the midst of the rubble of 586 B.C., how dare we not? Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my heavenly Father. With the combinations of loving kindness and faithfulness, Let us note Psalm 92, verse 2. Give thanks to the Lord to declare thy thankfulness in the morning and thy faithfulness by night. And for the merciful compassion elsewhere in Jeremiah, look at Jeremiah 31, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, and declare in the coastlands far off, and say, He who scattered, I'm sorry, 31 verse 20, I take it back. Is Ephraim my dear child? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. The yearning and compassionate heart of the Lord, even for wayward Ephraim, which is a name, of course, for the northern kingdom of Israel. One other tidbit, one other intriguing tidbit, one other fascinating and suggestive tidbit from this 24th verse of chapter 3. The phrase, the Lord is my portion, Reads in Hebrew, Helki Yahweh. Helki Yahweh, the noun for portion 
being Helek, Heth, Lamed, Kaf in the Hebrew. Now, keep your finger in Lamentations 3. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1. As you scan that verse, do you notice any HLK word there? Jeremiah's father. Named? Hilkiah. Hilkiah in Hebrew, which is Hilkiahu, means the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion, Hilkiah. The Lord is my portion, Helki Yahweh. Do we have a biographical reflection embedded in Lamentations 3.24? Intriguing, intriguing tidbit. The one whose portion is the Lord in hope, 586 B.C., is the son of the father whose name means the Lord is my portion. Mm. Jeremiah, the son, punning on his father's name. Hmm. Both of whom, father and son, disclose that the Lord is their portion. The Lord is their possession. The Lord is their personal God and Lord. New every morning, great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope in him. Hope restored, which seemed perished in verse 18. Magnificent stuff. Absolutely magnificent. Verses 25 to 27. Yes, question. Terry. I just wanted to know the Psalms chapter. Yes, Psalm 92, verse 2. Verses 25 to 27. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. I and I prime on your outline. I prime being the parallel verses 40 to 42. Now, the first thing to note about these three verses is a word repeated in each, a light verter for the unit, if you will. Do you see it? As you scan those three verses, do you see the word, the light verter, the key word? Good. Good, exactly. And in fact, the Hebrew word for good, Tov, 
And each of these three verses stands first. As you will notice, it is the uh, Tau, the Taith, rather, of verse 25 in the alphabetic sequence, which becomes Tov with the other consonants and is a three-peat word in this section. Good is the Lord, verse 25. Good is the one who waits, verse 26. Good it is for a man, verse 27. I've translated because good is first in the Hebrew text. Our English places it in the attributive position, but in the Hebrew text, tov, 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 at the beginning of each verse in this unit. Good, good, good. We have here yet another attribute of God. God is good. Repeatedly intoned in the Psalter. See Psalm 34 and 73 for concrete examples. God is good, as all Scripture testifies. But good here is reciprocal. Good here is concurrently reciprocal, mimetically reciprocal. God is good. Agreed. Agreed. God is good. Good the man who waits for the salvation of the Lord. Lord, Or good in the man who bears his yoke. From whence does this goodness arise? From that man's own mind and heart by nature? But we've been cataloging now for more than two and a third chapters the evil of the mind and heart of man. Evil, non-goodness. Non-goodness which produced the blood, fire, and rubble of 586 B.C. Whence then this goodness in the man of verse 26 and 27? Whence then this reciprocal goodness? It is the goodness of the Lord given to him as a gift, as a free transformation of his nature, as a divine and supernatural gift from above as an eschatological gift from an ontologically good being. The ontological being is God perfectly good. And from the goodness of his divine being, God gifts good to the sinful creature. From above, where his goodness dwells in him, from the eschatological arena, God who is good, imparts the gift of his goodness to the ungood hearts of sinners. Out of that good, from that ontologically good one, those sinners receive the good gift in their changed nature and they act upon it. They express it in their new nature. They do good out of the eschatological gift of goodness freely granted them by the God of all good ontologically. God makes his goodness concurrently active in the gift of goodness to sinners. They mirror the goodness of the gift of God which they have received by doing good. They do the good thing of waiting for the salvation of the Lord because they have first been moved by the goodness of the Lord to wait patiently, if not silently, upon him. 
They do the good thing of bearing the yoke of the Lord even in their youth because they have been first moved by the goodness of the Lord to carry the yoke of suffering and sorrow and lamentation in this present evil age. Concurrence. God who is good, the gift of good in those united to God. Mimesis. God who is good, the gift of good in those mirroring God. Where does the good come from? From only one place. The good is a gift from the all good Lord and God. It does not come from anywhere else. Notice the flow then of this litany of God's attributes which we have begun to notice strung together from verses 22 to 27. God is gracious in his loving kindness. He gives that grace and loving kindness to his children. God is merciful in his compassion. He gives that compassion and mercy to his children. God is faithful and trustworthy. He gives that faithfulness and trustworthiness to his children. God is good and holy. He gives that goodness and holiness to his children. These attributes of God are all gifts of his benevolence, gifts of his saving kindness, gifts of his free giving. They come from him. And if they have not come from him, they are not worth describing as good or merciful or compassionate. They are always, if they don't come from him, self-serving and self-promoting and ultimately self-destroying. Now there's another potential tidbit here. In verse 27, Is it good for a man that he should bear the yoke? I take you back to Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 2. Thus says the Lord to Jeremiah, Make for yourself a yoke and put it upon your neck. And in chapter 28, verse 10, Then Hananiah the prophet, he's the false prophet, took the yoke from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke it. Is the reflection here of bearing the yoke one that our poet, prophet Jeremiah experienced? He bore the yoke. Verses 28 to 30. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. This is J on your outline to match J prime in verses 37 to 39. If you have the New American Standard, which I just read, you will notice that there's the recursive pattern 
in the three verses, let him. It begins each of the verses and it's used one more time at the end of verse 30. These verbs all begin with the initial yoth in the Hebrew text. You see that letter opposite the J, that's the yoth in Hebrew. <clears throat> the form of the verb is called a jussif. And you can see that here it has a hortatory sense, exhorting our suffering man to act, to sit alone, verse 28 to lay his mouth in the dust, verse 29, to give his cheeks to the smiters, verse 30. These exhortations also have the force of commands, hence the grammatical label jussives, from a Latin word meaning to order or to command or to ask. Let him, let him, let him. A jussive with the force of an imperative. A command. You will also note the mimetic or mirror pattern of these verses. Who sits alone in chapter 1, verse 1? It is the city of Jerusalem, the personified city. The suffering servant here sits as the city there sits. Who covers themselves with dust in chapter 2, verse 10? the inhabitants of the suffering city. The suffering servant here sits in the dust as the people there sit in the dust. Who gives his face to the smiters as he bears the reproach of their insults? The suffering servant of the Lord gives his face to the smiters. Sounds of suffering. The sounds of suffering fall upon this suffering man. He sits alone, solitary in his grief. And his speech, he speaks not a word. So speechless has the degree of his suffering left him. The sounds of suffering, silence. One of the sounds of suffering. All his energy, all his soul is concentrated, focused on bearing, on carrying the burden of suffering which has been laid upon him. He can utter no cry. He is completely focused on bearing, carrying, holding the suffering to himself. That weight of sorrow, that cross of grief collapses him to the ground, to the dust of the ground. So abject and humiliating his suffering that he gives his mouth to the dust of the ground. He gives his mouth to the dust of the ground. The sounds of suffering fall upon this suffering man. We hear the sounds of smiting, his cheeks slapped, stricken and buffeted. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, the suffering man gives his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that pluck it off the hair. He hid not his face from shame and spitting. 
that servant of the Lord. This suffering servant bears the abuse to the face that a slap to the face indicates. A slap to the face. A slap to the face. A sign of contempt. A sign of contempt and disrespect for the slapper wishes to humiliate the one slapped. Job 16.10 They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. So the slap to the face strikes the very core of the person's being, the very center of the person's existence, the one so humiliated at the depths of their soul. The slap to the face demeans and degrades. The slap to the face demeans and degrades, leaving the one slapped not only stunned, but also leaving them scorned. The suffering man bears the reproach. This suffering man carries the humiliation of being scorned by slaps to the face, of being despised by blows to the head, of being the object of contempt by being smitten about the cheeks. And this, all this, this suffering man endures in silence. He never said a mumbling word. And thus, all this, this suffering man endures vicariously identificationally, incarnationally. He is silent as those for whom he suffers are silent. He gives his mouth to the dust as those for whom he suffers give their mouths to the dust. He gives his face to the smiters as those for whom he suffers are slapped and beaten and humiliated about the face. This suffering man incarnates their suffering. This suffering man identifies, participates in their suffering. This suffering man vicariously reprises their suffering. This suffering man anticipates the eschatological suffering man. This suffering man projects, even as he embodies, that eschatological suffering man. One wonders how many on that hill outside Jerusalem on that Black Friday. One wonders how many once again looked up upon that broken, battered, pierced figure on that cross and wondered if it was Jeremiah come back from the dead. They had wondered that once before during his public ministry. They had thought Jesus of Nazareth to be the rebirth of Jeremiah, the prophet of Jerusalem. One wonders if they still looked upon him with that association on Mount Calvary.
one wonders. Because on Easter Sunday morning, they won't wonder anymore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the revelation of this suffering man in Lamentations 3. Who in your all-wise fashion is a very image and projection of your own beloved son. No, as a creature, he could never measure up to the non-creature that your son is. But your son took on the flesh of the creature that he might indeed complete and fulfill the suffering and afflicted man imagery of this poem in Lamentations 3. The riches of this poem are richer to us who know Jesus. We who have seen the one greater than Jeremiah, the one whom Jeremiah is but a faint mirror image of, and yet wonderfully drives us to the reality himself. Indeed, Lord, our suffering Savior, our suffering Lord, the bestower of all benefits of loving kindness, mercy, compassion, faithfulness, goodness, for he is both God, full of those attributes, and man, to distribute them and accomplish them and live them out in history. We are indeed blessed to know these things through the scriptures of Jeremiah and the Gospels. Lift up our hearts. Great is thy faithfulness. O Lord God, our Heavenly Father, in Jesus Christ, thy Son, by the Spirit. Amen.